0: Hello, Rebecca, and welcome back to you and our listeners.
1: Hi, John. Back in the saddle, are we?
0: Yes, we are. (laughs) From the Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items.
1: It's Monday, June 12th. John, what do you want to talk about today?
0: First, I want to talk about the Delta variant of the coronavirus and Boris Johnson's troubling plans, I guess you would say, to reopen the United Kingdom despite it. And then the U.S. exit from Afghanistan leaves Pakistan and Iran anxious about the Taliban's likely overthrow of the Afghan government, such as it is, and what that might imply. How about you?
1: Let's talk about hillbilly elegy author J.D. Vance's attention-grabbing run for Senate in Ohio. And after that, we can get into a New York Times article about the falling out Between Facebook's founder, Mark Zuckerberg, and its famed COO, Sheryl Sandberg.
0: All right, before we get to those items, let's start with two science and tech headlines.
1: First, Chinese scientists want to send a fleet of rockets to push a potentially earthbound asteroid off course. The asteroid in question, called Bennu, has a 1 in 2,700 chance of hitting Earth sometime in the late 22nd century. Slim odds and a distant timeline, but reportedly a massive risk. Live Science reports that a collision between the 85 million ton object and our planet would be cataclysmic. The scientists' calculations are detailed in an upcoming study in the journal Icarus. They find that 23 rockets pushing simultaneously against the asteroid would divert it enough to really ensure a peaceful transit. This idea isn't completely out of the blue. NASA has made a similar proposal in the past concerning Bennu. And together with Europe's space agency, NASA will provide a first test for asteroid pushing next year. The mission will send a spacecraft knocking against a rock that orbits an asteroid some 7 million miles away, then measure the effect on its trajectory. So 23 rockets pushing simultaneously against an asteroid. What does this mean? Like they launch into formation like the Blue Angels or something like that?
0: I have no idea. Yeah. When I read the story, I thought this is rocket science. I don't understand it, but it's
1: interesting. (laughs) Um,
0: And how they calculate one in 2700 chance, it's a better chance than winning the lottery. So I don't know. It's just, it's so futuristic The fact that it's being undertaken um, is part of our theme here, which is the future isn't in the future, it's happening now.
1: That's right. All right, moving on. A study in the Czech Republic finds that fish can get addicted to methamphetamine flowing through their waters. Researchers found that brown trout exposed to methamphetamine-rich waters then gravitated to it. The fish also had elevated methamphetamine levels in their brains and were less active. The study is published in the Journal of Experimental Biology. One of its authors says the drug dependence could impair the animal's drive toward foraging and mating, which could of course lead to reduced fish populations. As for how the methamphetamine gets there in the first place, anyone who ingests the substance will excrete it, and New Scientist reports that treatment plants aren't designed to filter it out. What do you say, John?
0: The part that I didn't get was that the fish would be less active. I thought I thought methamphetamine, yeah. you know, amped you up. Um, yeah, I don't know. It is part of a larger story, which is the quote pollution end quote of seas and riverways, yeah, uh, that are doing enormous damage to to the fish populations wherever they might be.
1: Well, it's bad for humans and it's bad for fish and it's. Uh, It's all around bad news.
0: (laughs) It is bad news,
1: yes. Apropos of bad news, let's talk COVID. The coronavirus's Delta variant is making news all around the world. Here's what to know The U.S. now has the highest rate of new COVID 19 cases since mid May. Delta has become the dominant variant, infecting thousands of people a day in unvaccinated regions. A new study published in Nature confirms that it is the most transmissible variant to date. The good news, it also shows that the Moderna, AstraZeneca, and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines are still effective against it, but only after patients have received both doses. While governments across Asia are tightening restrictions in response to spikes in new infections caused by Delta, Boris Johnson of the United Kingdom will lift all restrictions in England next week, even though the number of cases there are doubling every 10 days. John, there's a lot to digest here, but let's start with Boris Johnson. What do you make of his decision?
0: It's called Freedom Day, and it's a week from today. Ugh. And any number of virologists and you know scientists all around the world think it's wildly irresponsible. There are a number of people that support the decision. Precious few of them, it seems to me, are grounded in the science. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's taking an enormous risk by fully opening up things. I, mean, I don't know if you watched the soccer game yesterday, yep. but the Wembley Stadium was packed. I didn't see a lot of people wearing masks. And, you know, if one in a hundred of those people are infected with the Delta variant, then you're having essentially a super spreader event on live TV. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's really disconcerting. The second piece of this is, and this is more related to the United States, basically in the U.S. you have high vaccination rates in the Northeast and in the Southern states mainly, some Midwestern states, uh, you have lower rates of vaccination. So you have a situation where the Delta variant is taking off in the U.S., We know that the vaccination, dual vaccination, is effective in blocking it, and we have a huge swath of the country that is what you might call under-vaccinated, and Mm if Delta variant then blows up in the South, the politics of that get pretty tricky because people in the North and in the Pacific time zone are going to say, really, we're going to spend all this money treating these people when they had an option to protect themselves against the Delta variant? I think it's going to exacerbate political tensions in the country.
1: Why do you think Boris Johnson thinks he has to go all out with this? Like, why couldn't you have partial freedom day? Or why could you have like selected freedoms day? Why is it an all or nothing?
0: I think that the thinking is that the country has had tremendous success with vaccination Mm -hmm. and that the infection-death ratio is, from that point of view, is not terribly concerning. And by opening up everything, you're going to sort of lead to a natural herd immunity. I think that's sort of the basic argument that, yes, people will be infected, but they won't die. And in doing what they're doing... You know, you'll see a spike and then the spike will go down and then the nation will have achieved something like herd immunity. That seems to be the, quote, scientific, end quote, argument. The political argument is, you know, I'm riding a bump. I, meaning Boris Johnson, I'm riding a bump in the polls because of the vaccination campaign. Mm -hmm. And if I open up the country, that will further my bump and good things come from me being popular.
1: Yeah. All right. So we got to move on to our next news item. Iran. While the Mullahs may be happy to see the U.S. leave Afghanistan, they know that the Taliban will quickly fill the void left by departing U.S. troops. And as Bloomberg puts it, the Taliban, quote, poses a grave danger at an especially inconvenient moment. Iran's economy has been battered by sanctions and the pandemic, And the Taliban's rise is sure to bring waves of refugees into Iran, along with increased drug trafficking and a higher risk of terrorist attacks. However, earlier this year, senior Iranian officials hosted a Taliban delegation in Tehran. Some Iranian conservatives, including incoming president-elect Ebrahim Raisi, have publicly downplayed Iran's historic opposition to the Taliban, and this diplomatic approach may simply reflect the reality on the ground and the likelihood that the Taliban may take over in Afghanistan. John, help our listeners understand the calculations being made by Iran's leaders and what it means for the U.S.
0: I think for both Iran and Pakistan, the Taliban overthrow means that hundreds of thousands of people will migrate, Mm -hmm. and not all of them will be friendly forces, if you will. There'll be gangs, drug dealers, etc. But Iran, I think, is the second story here. Pakistan is the really troubling story because mm-hmm. the cultural, ethnic, and religious coherence, I guess, between the Taliban and the Pakistanis in that part of Pakistan, you know, make the border flow is easy. The relationships already exist. The Pakistani military was supportive of the Taliban for the last 20 years, if not the last 40 years. And now, you know, the Taliban sees Pakistan as vulnerable. And, you know, once they consolidate power, you know, Pakistan becomes a target for them Mm -hmm. because uh, if they get control, somehow get control of the nuclear weapons, then they're a global power.
1: What then does this mean for the U.S.? Just to return to a a question we asked at the top.
0: The U.S. leaving Afghanistan is a massively destabilizing event. Mm -hmm. And the last time we left Afghanistan... You know, there followed the rise of the Taliban. there followed the rise of Osama bin Laden. There followed the nine eleven attacks. There followed a twenty year war. We have no idea how this is going to go. The only thing we know is that by pulling out, well, we have to be honest about it, We're creating a situation that is incredibly unstable. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that may be a stabilizing influence is that China has a great, interest in the rare earths that exist in Afghanistan Uh and they may make a swap which is you know we'll come in and help you develop these resources you know so long as you behave I I can't imagine the Taliban would keep their end of that bargain but
1: uh, graveyard of empires yeah right
0: absolutely but it's a huge story and I'll tell you this this story will be in news items at least once a week for as long as I do news items
1: Mm -hmm. well we're on the cusp of a risky a risky geopolitical transition.
0: On that happy note, we're going to take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back.
1: Welcome back to the News Items podcast. The New York Times is out with an article adapted from the forthcoming book An Ugly Truth Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination. It describes how Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg's partnership at the company has supposedly deteriorated. We'll get into why, but first, here are the basics. Sheryl was hired as the chief operating officer 13 years ago, in part to liaise with Washington. The article paints her as ineffective at dealing with the Trump administration and unprepared to work with a more critical Democratic coalition in Congress— The authors also describe Sandberg as at odds with Zuckerberg's policy decisions on hate speech and misinformation. The big takeaway is that Sandberg's days as Facebook's number two are over, and Zuckerberg no longer relies on her like he used to. So John, what was going through your mind as you read this story?
0: I thought the story was preposterous, okay? They go into this long thing about how Zuckerberg courted Sheryl and so on and so forth. And yeah. they leave out the part of Roger McNamee saying to Zuckerberg, you really should hire this woman from Google. She's mm-hmm. fantastic. And she'll do all the things you don't want to do. Right. right? And then Zuckerberg met with her. He was really impressed and so on and so forth. So he hires her to be the COO. Sheryl mm-hmm. is arguably the most impressive businesswoman of this century. And her partnership with Zuckerberg, all other things aside, has created a trillion-dollar company. So th- there's that, okay? Mm-hmm. They've had disagreements about this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. But their relationship being fractured and Cheryl's fallen out with Mark and all this stuff is insane, okay? It's not, it's not true,
1: I you know, I wonder there are a couple of things I wonder. So if the takeaway is that Sandberg's days as Facebook number two are indeed quote unquote over and Zuckerberg no longer relies on her like he used to. Who is Zuckerberg relying on, if not Sheryl Sandberg? Is there oh, is the, there a new number two? I mean Nature abhors no, a vacuum. No as we all no know. Num- no,
0: there's no <laughs> <a> number
1: two. <laughs> no, no. No. There's she no runs the, yeah. she
0: runs the company. She yeah. runs the com- Mark is a coder. Yeah. You know, and he consults with a lot of people in the company about code and you know hate speech and you know yeah. oath keepers having chat groups and public policy and regulation and so on and so forth that you know the the article makes a big deal about the split between yeah. the alleged split between Zuckerberg and Cheryl was sort of writ large by Trump's election. Yeah. You know no kidding, right? I mean <laughs> yeah. she was yeah. Larry Summers' chief of staff. Yeah. She, you know, was a huge supporter of Hillary Clinton. She raised mm-hmm. millions of dollars for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. You know, the fact that she, that she was a liability in Washington after Trump was elected is a little bit like saying the sun comes up in the east, mm-hmm. right? And Zuckerberg, not surprisingly, said, okay, she's a liability. We'll have other people deal with the administration, and I, Zuckerberg, will form a relationship with Trump in the same way that, guess what, Tim Cook did. And, you know, that, that's entirely sensible. There's no big split between Zuckerberg and Sandberg. It's just pragmatic reallocation of time and personal resources.
1: Well, so it sounds like a whole lot of nothing. Well, Nothing I to see know. here.
0: <laughs> I mean, there's I a lot that? to see. It's not yeah. that in the life of people like Cheryl Sandberg the New York Times is a hugely important thing right mm-hmm. when she was growing up it was authoritative and what she read in the Times she knew to be true so for her to be attacked on the front page of the New York Times is really really hurtful not that that matters I mean mm. it, it's you know she she's certainly done well enough she doesn't really need to. You know, worry about what the New York Times says. Mm -hmm. There's a great essay about Facebook called You Are the Product by John Lanchester. That's a serious criticism of Facebook, Mm -hmm. right? And it's an important one, and it's one that should be discussed and argued and debated and how do you regulate it and on and Mm -hmm. on and on. That's important, okay?
1: So read You Are the Product instead.
0: You Are the Product, John Lanchester, the London Review of Books.
1: Yes. Got it. We'll check it out. All right. Shall we move on?
0: Yes, let's move on. (laughs)
1: All right. John, we've got to talk about J.D. Vance, the venture capitalist and author from Ohio who announced his bid for the Senate earlier this month. Vance became a media darling after writing Hillbilly Elegy, the best-selling book-turned-film that seemingly helped to explain Trump's election. And billionaire Peter Thiel, Vance's former boss, has put $10 million in a super PAC to help finance his run. Vance is going up against Josh Mandel, the former state treasurer, and Jane Timken, a former chair of the state Republican Party. However, he also voted for Evan McMullen in 2016 and was openly against Trump in the early going. But he's deleted those anti-Trump tweets and has now apparently recast himself as a Trump true believer. Where do you put Vance's chances?
0: What makes Vance compelling... From a political point of view is that back in 2016, mm-hmm. when everybody in the world, including everybody at Fox News, was convinced that Hillary Clinton would be the next president of the United States, Rupert Murdoch, you know, wandered all around the halls and told every executive that he knew and all the talk show hosts that they should read Hillbilly Elegy because in it one could see a coalition forming that would defeat her. mm mm-hmm. And Murdoch was really impressed by J.D. Vance and I think would support him and have Fox News tilt its coverage his way if he is the nominee and maybe even to help him get the nomination. So that's number one. Number two, Peter Thiel has put in $10 million to underwrite this, quote, exploratory committee, which you know, was supposedly looking at at Vance's prospects and they found that his prospects were good. So Vance will have plenty of money. And there is a strong feeling amongst the brainier influencers, quote unquote, on the right, that something new is needed, that we need to get to a post-Trump place. And that J.D. Vance, by virtue of biography and just by his life, is somebody that could be the vehicle of post-Trump populism. So I can easily imagine Ann Coulter and Peggy Noonan writing very similar columns in support of J.D. Vance. In fact, I expect that to happen. And he's got a weak field running against him.
1: If he's got all those things in his corner, then why is he embracing sort of like the Trump ideology, the Trump talking points? I mean, in 2016, he called Trump noxious. He called his claims ranging from immoral to absurd. How do you explain that?
0: Well, the way he would lose is if the race shakes out between the Trump candidate and J.D. Vance, right? So what he's trying to Mm. do is take the Trump love factor out of the election so that he can Mm. articulate sort of a populism that will resonate. I mean, this whole thing would be done if Trump endorsed J.D. Vance. I mean, if Mm -hmm. Trump said, J.D. Vance is my guy, it would clear the field. So, you know, the only thing that stands between Vance and the nomination in a relatively speedy fashion is Trump, who, of course, you know, (laughs) the big guy Mm -hmm. does not like the fact that J.D. Vance is being marketed as Trump without the baggage, right? So that pisses him off. (laughs) Uh And the second thing that pisses him off is that Fox News doesn't do what he wants them to do all the time. So Uh if Fox News wants J.D. Vance, maybe that's a little bit of leverage for the big guy over Fox News. And then, you know, holding the Senate on the Republican side, you know, Trump is eventually in favor of that. But he despises Mitch McConnell. And so anything that helps Mitch McConnell in the interim, you know, Trump is going to torture him as much as he possibly can.
1: How should Democrats view J.D. Vance? Should they fear the rise of someone like him? I mean, he is a Yale Law graduate. He is a venture capitalist. He is the classic story of someone who got out of the declining Rust Belt and yet has returned seemingly to represent it. Should Democrats in Ohio or even nationwide be fearful of the rise of a candidate like J.D. Vance?
0: I think that they're terrified of Mm -hmm. J.D. Vance. I think they see uh, in J.D. Vance an Obama-like figure of the right, Mm -hmm. somebody who could command a much larger portion of the electorate than, say, even Trump, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, Trump is sort of ceilinged at 46%. But you could imagine a candidate, at least on paper, like Vance, being a 51% candidate or a 52% candidate. And, of course, we know that they're terrified because MSNBC is spending vast amounts of time attacking him. Mm -hmm. New York Magazine ran this completely turgid attack on him. And, you know, the Washington Post has been on the attack. I mean, you can see the sort of Democratic media complex doing everything they can to take him out, essentially and that will work to Vance's advantage.
1: Well, Trump was a candidate who it's, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Trump was and is a candidate who thrives on anger. Whereas uh, J.D. Vance, he becomes a venture capitalist, launches the Rise of the Rest Fund, he backs startups. So rather than tapping in to this anger and resentment and grievance politics, as Trump has done, he says to middle America or, you know, parts of the country that have been overlooked. Do you have a startup? I'll back your startup. It's like saying, I think you're smart. They think you're stupid, but I think you're smart. That should be a Democratic Party platform issue.
0: You know, Goldman Sachs has made this huge investment in small businesses in Iowa that has turned out to be very, very successful. And if J.D. Vance can essentially lead something like that yeah. in each and every part of the states in the Midwest and in parts of the South, you know, that he's going to be a truly national figure.
1: Democrats have got to sit up and take notice. I mean, I don't know what else to say about it.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, clearly they have. I, yeah. I was temporarily insane and I watched part of Morning Joe and they spent 20 minutes attacking Vance. Uh huh. And I thought, wow, at the moment he's like five percent in the polls. I mean, yeah. I understand he's gonna improve, but it seemed like a wild overreaction to somebody yeah. who is just getting started. Yeah. But I think everybody sees the potential there.
1: And what are they attacking him for? Just to just for the purpose of clarity, what's the attack on Vance for being a
0: integrity. For doing a flip-flop right, on a know. flip-flop on Trump. Yeah, he posted tweets that Trump was horrible or whatever, and then he deleted those tweets. So he's a completely craven, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. We'll see, right? But the person that can make J.D. Vance a national figure in three seconds is Donald Trump. And Mm -hmm. the most interesting thing to me will be watching Trump not do that.
1: (laughs) All right. In the meantime, for our uh, listeners who would like more of what they just heard here on News Items, go straight to the real source, which is the News Items newsletter. John puts it out. What is it? Six days a week? Six days a week, right? Yep. Newsitems.substack.com. And you got to go for the premium subscription where you get all the analysis, all the good stuff.
0: And if you want to, yeah. And if you want to know, thank you, by the way. My pleasure. And if you want to know more about the global market of things, you have to go to Rebecca's site. InvestibleUniverse.com. It's a fantastic site and has taken off in recent weeks.
1: That it has. So News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Simran Singh, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground.
0: We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with my interview with Amy Wilentz author of a book about Haiti and a contributing editor for The Nation magazine. We'll be talking, of course, about developments in Haiti since the brazen assassination of its president last week. We'll see you then.